episode 20 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, and I'm coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And tonight we're finally going to finish up with the Alfred Hitchcock early years episode. So the first half of his career, really. And this has been a long journey and a lot of work, so I'm glad we're getting here to the end and being able to finish up this section. I also kind of modified how I'm doing this as opposed to how I was saying last episode what the plan was going to be, and we'll get into that as we go along. But I did have one correction that I wanted to get into, and you know I always like to correct myself if I do get something wrong. And so I've got one of those before we get into the meat of this episode, so let's go ahead and take care of that. This correction comes by way of Dr. Shock Dave Becker, who has been a guest on here a couple of episodes and has, you know, several other big horror podcasts under his belt. And he's also pretty much a film historian when it comes to that and all film, not just kind of genre film like I like to dig into or horror film. He knows everything about every genre, it seems like. So we had talked about anything I talked about, and I had made the comment that I didn't see Hitchcock as an auteur. Well, got this one way wrong because... <laughs> Uh, I guess I didn't understand because when we're thinking about it today, when you think of an auteur, most of the auteurs today, you know, they are writing and directing their own movies. But that's not necessarily the point of the auteur theory. And the auteur theory is the director is in control. So Dave kind of uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, not necessarily true. So I wanted to correct that. So Hitchcock is absolutely an auteur in the sense that he is a director who's Films that you can feel are his if you watch them. There's a through line, and you can tell it's a Hitchcock film in a lot of his films. So thanks, Dave. I appreciate you setting me straight on that, and there might be more to come on this in the future, so stay tuned. All right, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. So if you would, open your books up to Chapter 5, Page 5. Let's kick this thing off. So where we left off, Hitchcock had put out Spellbound and was returning to London to resume talks with Sidney Bernstein. And he and Sidney Bernstein wanted to form Transatlantic Pictures, whose goal would be to get the best talents from both countries to collaborate on movies. So that is, from Hollywood and London, we'd be putting the best of the best of those two areas into the same movies. But the problem was they needed investors to get it off the ground. So he stayed in London for about 10 weeks, but they still couldn't find any financial backers. He was prepared to return to Hollywood, where he was still under contract for one more David O. Selznick film. Due to the success of Spellbound, a part of the cast and crew from that film would be used on the next film, including Bergman and Ben Hecht, who wrote Spellbound. As to what that next film would be, well, Selznick discovered the story The Song of the Dragon in a magazine serial and planned to adapt it. In December, Hitchcock and Hecht would meet most days from 9am to 6pm to discuss the movie, which would end up being called Notorious. And that is our first movie that we're going to be covering this evening. When he and Hecht weren't together... Hecht would be at his typewriter preparing the script. So, you know, they were already together from 9 to 6 every day to discuss the movie. 
And then when they weren't there, Hecht would be actually typing up the movie. So you can imagine the long days of those two. In the spring of 1945, they came together for the final draft. By this point, several aspects of the script had been changed, as is usual with most script processes. The extensive rewrites, though, ended up costing Selznick quite a bit of money, and with each delay they had in the production, came even, he became even more anxious. Hitchcock was also holding out on signing a new agreement with Selznick due to his talks with Bernstein. Eventually, though, Selznick decided to sell the project to RKO to recoup some of his investment. Now, under RKO, Hitchcock gained much more freedom and even managed to cut Selznick out completely. And what would be the first step to their partnership? During production, Hitchcock flew back to London to serve as a consultant on a documentary with Bernstein about the Nazi concentration camps. He was so horrified by the material that it took him several days to continue working on it. But yeah, they compiled some pretty fresh Nazi concentration camp footage together to put out as an informative tool, but Hitchcock didn't work on it very long because he was just there to kind of help piece it together, and I think it really took a toll on him, as it would anyone, really. He returned after a month and began working again on Notorious. Now, Hecht continued with rewrites even as they filmed, which, at least for this episode, is going to be very common in these films we're talking about. For the first time, though, Hitchcock was in complete control of post-production and didn't have to deal with a producer. Now, a lot of times that could be seen as good or bad, depending on how you can deal with it. At the end of the day, when the film was finished, it was loved by critics at the time. And I don't know how successful it did the box office, but yeah, this was at least a successful film. So let's go ahead and get right down into it. That's all I really have on the background of Notorious. Um, So last episode, I was debating on whether to do this one, and Nathan kind of pushed me in the direction of to do it, and that was my original plan, so I stuck with it. He said I thought I would like this one a lot, and I did like this one a lot. Let's, um, But let's go ahead and set this up. This was a 1946 film, and the synopsis reads, In order to help bring Nazis to justice, U.S. government agent T.R. Devlin recruits Alicia Huberman, the American daughter of a convicted German war criminal, as a spy. As they begin to fall for one another, Alicia is instructed to win the affections of Alexander Sebastian, a Nazi hiding out in Brazil. When Sebastian becomes serious about his relationship with Alicia, the stakes get higher, and Devlin must watch her slip further undercover. That's a pretty long synopsis, but it's pretty good. It doesn't give a whole lot away. But that's what we have here. We have Cary Grant, who I will say right off the bat, I like him so much better than I did in Suspicion. I think Suspicion is a low point in his career based on the films that I've seen, even though a lot of people like Suspicion. I think a lot of people maybe overstate some of these Hitchcock films, and I'm not saying that they're not all great, but there are definitely great ones, and then I think there are ones, in my view anyway, that just don't seem up to snuff. And I think Suspicion is one of those, but I think Grant turns it around here, and of course turns around in North by Northwest later. But yeah, he's this... Agent Alicia's father was just sentenced to, you know, time in prison, or he was convicted because he was, you know, spying, essentially. So, 
she gets recruited by Devlin to go down to Brazil and help them uncover some other German spies. And the two fall in love as they begin to go for it. And like the synopsis said, they're put in a position where she has to win the affections of this guy. Grant doesn't necessarily like it. Bergman doesn't necessarily like it. But they're too stubborn to say anything to each other. And they go through with it. And as it goes on, the tension and the drama build in this, I wouldn't call it really a love triangle. It's kind of a forced love triangle because she is a spy. But it's a very good film. This is another one of the espionage thrillers from Hitchcock, but it feels very different from his earlier attempts. I think this is a complete movie through and through, and I think it's a great movie through and through. This one just really struck me, and I think Bergman is incredible here as well. And really the entire cast is remarkable, and I think it's just so well done and put together. Like Nathan did suggest, you know, I do care about the romance in this one, and I think Bergman and Grant have excellent chemistry together on screen, and they're kind of, um, you know, they're obviously falling for one another, but they're restrained because they have jobs to do and this and that and, and everything else, and it's really conveyed well on screen between the two of them. There's also some excellent tension, like I said, surrounding whether Bergman will be exposed or not. We get this great scene involving a wine cellar that is very much... Probably the most tense moment in the film. I mean, I guess there's some later when we get into it. But that is the main tension and suspense around this film. Is, you know, will Bergman's cover get blown? Will she be okay? What are these people willing to go to? And I'll tell you, that just kind of... It just puts you on edge through the entire movie. And I think with this one, a lot of times with these... I find Hitchcock does not nail... The ending, and I think he really does here. I think it's a really great ending, and I think it's the perfect way to end this movie. It really is this, you know, spy espionage type thing with some romance thrown in, and that's okay. That's all it needs to be, and I really like it for that aspect. The last 20 minutes or so are very tense, and I think the ending just strikes this perfect chord between somber and satisfying. So, no, it's not a noir ending in a sense, but it is a satisfying ending that's not 100% a happy ending, and I won't say any more about how that goes, but I really like the way it's wrapped up. Now, I don't really have much more to say about Notorious. There's not a whole lot, you know, high-stake action set pieces. It's really about the characters and how they talk to each other and how they develop throughout the film and interact and how they go about doing their task and what they're set about to do. But I really love Notorious. I would say it's a absolute must-watch for any Hitchcock fan. And as far as non-Hitchcock fans, I think it's a must-watch as well. I think this was a good one that you could watch with you know, your significant other if they're not into horror, if they're not into these darker thrillers. I think this is a really good one that most people will like. So Notorious definitely skyrockets more to the top of my Hitchcock list so far. I don't know. All in all, I just really enjoyed everything about it. I think it's a great movie, and go check it out, and pick this one up if you can. That's another thing I didn't really get into about these Hitchcock releases, because there's very prominent ones as far as the Universal stuff goes. I know Nathan and I, I think, had talked about last episode about Spellbound is very hard to find. I don't think you can really find it cheap or affordable anymore. 
there are some excellent sets, and there's a bunch of 4Ks coming out. Those are the Universal ones. And Universal also has these big sets and smaller sets and everything like that. And it has most of his classic films, like Psycho and The Birds and all that kind of stuff. And you'll find Shadow of a Doubt, and you'll find Rope, um, another film we'll talk about tonight. And all of those on there. But it's missing a lot of his early catalog. And a lot of his early catalog, including Notorious, can be found on the Criterion Collection. And Nathan and Dave Becker, who had already spoken about on this episode earlier, were actually putting out a physical media type uh, Criterion Collection episode for the July sale that's going on. Right now, you can get till the end of July all Criterion releases half off. And Amazon has a lot of those half off as well. So, and that's at Barnes & Noble, who the main sale is going through. And I think almost every Criterion collection release is on there. So if you want to pick up a lot of these earlier Hitchcock films, a lot of them are on the Criterion collection. There are only a handful, I think. There's only three. I have this big 15-movie set, and only three of those were universal distributed or they'd picked up later. And only three of those are in the section that I'm covering for this set of movies up through 1951. So, uh, that was a little aside, but if you find yourself wanting to pick some of these up, most of them had they have good releases for, including Blackmail and The Lodger, which were two of his silent films, and those are available on Criterion. I'll move on from that, but uh, that is notorious, very good. Uh, make sure you check that one out. Put that near the top of your priority list. And it's probably really telling, you know, Rebecca and Notorious are at the top of my list here, and those are two where romance is very high on the list, but I promise that's not not all I'm into here. Um, Remember, I like Shadow of a Doubt, and there's not a whole lot of, I didn't like the romance aspect there, so let's move on and get get out of this hole we're going down. so. So next he would actually work on his last film with Selznick. And that would be The Paradigm Case. And that was based on the 1933 novel of the same name. It was one of Selznick's kind of pet projects. Ever since the novel released, he was looking to make it into a film. At the same time, Transatlantic Pictures was announced, and Bergman was said to be the star of their first movie. Selznick was well aware of this, and I think we talked about that last episode, you know, he was even aware of it then. But even though, you know, Hitchcock had fulfilled his contract, there was still tension between them. Hitchcock was going to do this last film, and he's going to do all the movies he was signed up for, but it still kind of ticked Selznick off, and I don't know, they didn't seem to work well together, so I don't know why he wanted to hang around with Hitchcock. I think it works out best for both parties to move on. So, Hitchcock brought in Scottish playwright James Birdie. However, he was working with Transatlantic on Under Capricorn at the same time. Now, this upset Selznick, and he decided to write the screenplay himself. He just dismissed Birdie's and threw away his screenplay. In the Paradigm case, Hitchcock would work with Gregory Peck again, and again they had issues, as Hitchcock wouldn't give him direction. It said this was obvious when you watch Peck on the screen. Now, I haven't watched the movie, and based on what I've heard, I really don't have an intent to. But we'll get into that in a little bit. As filming continued, Selznick continuously sent new pages of the script down to the set, causing confusion and panic among the cast and crew. 
I can only imagine how crazy that would be for pages to just constantly be sent down to the the set. You don't know if what you're filming today, if you're already in the middle of filming it, if it's going to get changed or what. So it seems like this is one of the tr- more troubled productions and maybe one that didn't end so well. It was clear that his heart necessarily wasn't in this one, and you can't really blame him. But it's said that one time when he was shooting a pivotal five-minute-long scene for the film, Selznick came and interrupted him, taking control of the scene himself. So you see the kind of micromanaging and oversight that he's getting on this one. But you kind of see it from Selznick's side, too, because he just did, you know, Notorious, which cost him so much money that he had to offload the movie to try to make his profit back. So I get it, and he's bitter over Hitchcock leaving, so it makes a little sense. But uh, the film suffered several delays, and he blamed Hitchcock for intentionally slowing the movie down without any good reason. Hitchcock retorted that he was working with equipment that was outdated for 20 years. It was really old, and that was what was slowing him down. So, um, it was finally finished in the spring of 1947. He filmed it for a whopping 92 days, and it cost $4.25 million and was over three hours long. Now, these were all records for Hitchcock, of course. You could imagine Selznick was not too happy about any of this. So what did he do? He went and did what he did best and cut this thing to pieces, reshot scenes, redubbed audio. He cut a full 50 minutes off of this film. Wow, wow, 50 minutes, man. That is a lot to cut off of a film, but partially Hitchcock's problem for probably putting that thing at three hours long. Although it wasn't the disaster it quite could have been, it was still viewed as really bad, mostly due to the wooden performances from the cast. So it nowhere near made its money back, and it just apparently has these terrible performances all throughout it. So not really worth seeking out, but yeah, did lose money, Um, And Hitchcock would never work with Selznick again after this. And a funny anecdote, when Peck was asked, you know, which film of his he would like to see burned the most, or wouldn't care to see burned, without really hesitating, he said the paradigm case. So, you can imagine how bad this was for everyone. I don't think anyone owned up to it, you know, and actually liking the film. So, Transatlantic came out to announce their first film, and it in fact did not star Bergman, and was based on a murder that occurred more than 20 years earlier. Well, that happens all the time, you know, you get delays and this and that, and when you're working on a movie, so yeah, Under Capricorn kind of slid back, and this next film would take its place. In the real-life tragedy that occurred in this murder, a pair of law students kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy to prove they could commit the perfect murder. Now, that sounds tailor-made for Hitchcock material, as, you know, it's devastating as that is to think about in a real-life crime sense. But Five years later, after the crime, a stage play by Patrick Hamilton called Rope was based on this and that would serve as the inspiration for Hitchcock's next film. The film was meant to mirror the play, taking place in a single location and shot entirely on a Warner Brothers set. This is where things get interesting. The stories behind and, you know, how they made this movie work and everything that went into it is ultimately 
you know, much more interested in the film, no matter how good the film is. I'm not saying this is a bad movie. I'm saying it's a great movie, really, once we get into it. But the stories behind it are so crazy how they had to put all this stuff together. And we would see a trend here for Hitch with Hitchcock for a little bit that would send his career on a new trajectory, and Rope was the start of that. So here's what he planned to do. He basically put together film segments comprised of 10-minute uninterrupted scenes. Now, this is a shorter movie. It comes in at an hour and 20. So and you could see, like, yeah, that might necessitate it if you're going to do 10 minutes long of a scene without interrupting it. The camera would swing across the set, and props were placed on rollers so they could easily be moved back and forth. If something needed to be moved, you know, and it wasn't in place for a scene, say an actor would set down a glass of water, a stagehand would have to come over and covertly grab the water so it wasn't seen in the film. Now, this movie takes place in an apartment, as we'll get to later. That is the single location, and it's overlooking the New York skyline. It has this huge window where you can just see what looks like the New York skyline. To accomplish this feat, they built an exact miniature that represented 35 miles of the New York skyline to sit outside of that window. This, you know, monstrosity took 8,000 bulbs and had 200 neon signs that required 150 transformers to run power to it. <laughs> so that's, that's crazy in and of itself, the effort they're putting into this movie. This was also Hitchcock's first Technicolor movie, and it's a lot of the reason why he wanted these lights set up that way. You know, he mainly wanted to use the color as a prop more than anything else. He wanted to use the lighting to affect the mood and the passage of time to be seen in the apartment with the lights turning on and the sky growing dim. And He wanted all that to build up and play into the tension and the film itself. He brought on Hume Cronin to adapt the script. He noted that Hitchcock was more interested in the technique of the film more than the story. Many Hollywood actors actually turned down the lead roles because of the sexual orientation of the main characters. And due to this, I mean, Hitchcock really had to scramble. He found two unknown actors to cast in this role. Both men were actually either homosexual or bisexual in reality. James Stort was brought in to play the headmaster of the men, and Stort really plays against character here. He plays against his type. You know, he's really into Nietzsche and the idea of the Ubermensch, and not exactly, you know, in his normal protagonist role. He's really into this and into this idea of, you know, murder's okay if it's committed by the right person and committed against the right person, and yeah. Very weird turn for him, but I think he does well. Hitch viewed Stort as the perfect Hitchcock protagonist because he is the everyman in bizarre situations. He epitomizes that. He loved Stort's style of acting based on his nuanced movements. He said, you know, he can make a take a little movement and convey exactly what he wants the crowd to think. And I you don't have to sell me on that because, you know, James Stort is one of my all-time favorite actors. However, Stort vowed to never work with Hitch again, even though he would in fact work with him several more times throughout his career. 
he claimed that Rope wasn't one of his favorites and that there were so many actors who could have played it better. Uh, so Stort's not a fan in the time of working with Hitchcock, didn't like it, and thought that he was maybe miscast or others could play it better. But Hitchcock, you know, was viewed as having saved Stort's career from being just routine and dull and playing the same roles. He really shook things up, and we'd see Stort take on some more out-of-character roles going into the 50s after this. So, regardless of what he thinks, Hitchcock was probably doing him a favor in this one. Now let's get to these 10-minute scenes. They were said to be very intense, and they did rehearsals. This was treated pretty much like a stage play. You know, it was adapting a stage play. So they have these 10-minute long scenes. They're going to do rehearsals again and again to get these scenes right so they have minimal friction when they get into the actual filming. It was said they were so intense in this movie that Stort couldn't sleep at night due to the stress, you know, worrying that he was going to mess something up and cause everyone to have to do it over again. It was very high stakes. As the takes drug on, the atmosphere became even more tense. Hitchcock was so anxious that he couldn't even look during the first takes of these scenes. I'm sure the atmosphere was exactly what he was trying to draw out of them. Hitchcock's notorious for that and putting his actors and into situations where they're not comfortable and they feel real life, you know, stress and are intense situations so he can see that come out on the screen. So filming took place in early 1948 and only lasted 18 days. So that's a huge drop off from the 90 some days that we saw with the Paradigm case earlier. So good for him for getting that cut down, but he once said that Rope was his most exciting film, but would later call it a stunt that he can't believe he did. This is, you can't believe everything Hitchcock said. Yes, this movie was kind of a stunt, and maybe it didn't do very well because of that. But here's the thing is he he did this a lot with his less successful movies. Hitchcock was obsessed with, you know, achieving popularity and financial gain from these movies when he released them. So if something doesn't do well, he's very quick to turn on it, even when earlier he might not have. So I think that's the case definitely here. Rope did make a tiny profit, but it wasn't really received well by the critics or the public. So, And I don't get that one because looking back, a lot of people view this as one of Hitchcock's you know, earlier classics. It's not in the realm of how people view Psycho or Rear Window or anything like that. But people often talk fondly of Rope now. So let's recap where we are here. This was Transatlantic's first film, and it didn't do so hot. So the excitement for Transatlantic kind of lessened and died down. There was a huge excitement going into this, but as we would see, it would only get worse for the production company. It really led to the question also that maybe more than Hitchcock was needed to make a Hitchcock film. Whether or not you believe that, I think we've seen that several times in his career as he works best when he has good, competent people who are creative around him and giving him input and everything like that. 
So let's go ahead and talk about Rope itself, and I will set it up and give a synopsis here. It is a 1948 release, and the synopsis reads, very short and sweet, Two men attempt to prove that they committed the perfect crime by hosting a dinner party after strangling their former classmate to death. This movie starts off a bit disorienting. It's very much puts you right in the middle of it. You don't know who these people are, and you have to learn about them as the movie goes on. Which, as it goes on, it just gets better. Uh, I can see where this it would be very influential to other movies. I, I can... You just see a lot of things in this one where, you know, you can see bits and pieces here where, yeah, that influenced this movie, that influenced this movie. I think, and we know Hitchcock's very influential as a whole, but I just saw several things here that we would see later in other movies. Again, I love Jimmy Stewart, and I think he does great in this film. I think the entire cast and acting is a strength of this movie. The problem is, is yes, it is a very basic through-line plot, mostly because Hitchcock was not focused on the plot. But, as I alluded to earlier, the lighting is incredible in this movie, and it gets so much better as it goes on, and we get into the nighttime, and you get all these neon signs, and or when you see, like, twilight in the sky, and you see all this stuff, it just gets better and better, and it's fantastic. I love the lighting in this film. And using all those lights and taking all that time to do it, it was just, it was so good. But to give you a little background, what what basically happens is these two characters, and I, you know, I talked about the synopsis, but it doesn't really get into it. But yes, these two characters had murdered their former friend and classmate. And what are they going to do? Well, they take the body, they hide the body somewhere in the apartment, and they almost dare people to find out that they did it. You know, they use the noose to that they used on him to try to tie up some books and they did this or that. And it's pretty, pretty sick, really. You know, the books that they tie the noose around, they're planning to give to the victim's father, um, who they have invited over. They've invited over a bunch of people over into their apartment, including the, you know, the aunt, the father, and the girlfriend of the victim. So they invite them all over to this party and, and Jimmy Stewart is their old headmaster, who they also invited over, and then you've got their, like, caretaker, maid, or whoever it is. So they've set this whole thing up, and really, really landed on thick, and are, like, daring anyone to be like, you can't prove that we did this, you know, you're not gonna figure out that we did this, we committed the perfect crime, we hit it perfectly, you're never gonna catch us. So maybe a little bit of hubris. Hubris is definitely their undoing, because they, uh, yeah, they're just not... (sighs) But here again, that brings up another point that I thought of, and it'll come up later tonight too, is we do kind of have this death game scenario later on. That's what I like to call it, the uh, thing that we were talking about in Shadow of a Doubt earlier, where the characters are going back and forth, and oh, I could do it this way and this way. Seems like this is a recurring thing in Hitchcock's movies, where someone's trying to figure out or work out how you would commit a crime, and it never gets old. I've seen it like in three movies, three or four of his movies now. And it doesn't get old. I love seeing the characters do that. And that's definitely Hitch's twisted sense of humor. I think it does get pretty tense as we approach the ending. But I feel like a step or two in the mystery may have been skipped. This is only, you know, an hour and 20 minute movie. And I feel like there's just things in... We could have, you know, added five to ten minutes here or there to 
really make a better through line. It's just like Ben Hecht was saying, maybe this isn't the best Hitchcock through line, and he wasn't really concerned with it. And I think that could have improved it for sure. It's also a shame we don't get more out of certain characters. There's a couple characters that I really like, and they're really taken out of the equation earlier than I would have liked, and I would have liked to see more screen time with them. So that's not ideal, and that goes back to, again, like, I think this movie's cut short very quickly, and I think the the party is over way too soon, just talking generally. But yeah, that's that's my thought on that. Oh, another interesting thing, and I might, I can't remember if I have this down to talk about later, but there is a Bergman, an Ingrid Bergman reference in this movie that's just, that's pretty funny. They, you know, some characters are talking about her as an actress, so that's pretty cool. So, yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag in places, but I think overall it's a really enjoyable film. It's great to see how some of these characters lose their composure as they start to go on and get closer to this or that, but it's a really good character study. There's just maybe some plot points missing. I would still put this among the highest of Hitchcock's films before, you know, 1951. I think it's a very enjoyable movie. I think it's another very digestible movie like Notorious is for wide audiences. So in that case, you know, this is a must-watch for Hitchcock fans. As always, they've probably already seen it. And it's a, I think, a very high recommendation, if not a, you know, a must-watch for people who are not necessarily deep into Hitchcock and want to watch this. I think this is another one where you could show someone and they would really be into it. So... Uh, That's my take on Rope. I think it's a very good movie with some flaws. So uh, Notorious, I would think, edges it out by a decent amount as far as those two films, which one I like better. All right, let's keep this train moving. So next up was Under Capricorn. And again, that would star Ingrid Bergman. And it was essentially a period drama and a costume drama. Now, Hitchcock had always hated costume dramas. Because, and again, I quote directly from the man, he couldn't visualize how the characters would use the lavatory or earn their money. So, you know, in that sense, he didn't care for period dramas or costume dramas. (laughs) So weird, but so Hitchcock. However, he really did want to work with Bergman again. He was almost obsessed with her. So he swallowed his pride and went and did the costume drama. He started work on the first treatment in February of 1948 and finished in March. He then flew back to London to start filming in Elstree Studio, so back where he used to work with, you know, Gainsborough Pictures and all that. Hume Cronin and Hitchcock went back and forth and disagreed with each other about doing these long takes for Under Capricorn that he did for Rope, and... You know, Cronin just felt it wouldn't work, so didn't really necessarily work with Rope, but I don't know if Hitchcock would have known this at this point, Uh, but Cronin's a little skeptical about, do you really want to do this? He also mentioned that Hitchcock was always visualizing the scenes piece by piece without thinking of the through line connecting them, so kind of what we talked about with Rope. Cronin also recalls one morning that Hitchcock angrily declared this film is going to be a flop. I'm going to lunch and he pouted on his way out of the room. So that's typical Hitchcock, you know, when he doesn't get what he wants, he's reverts back to this, 
very indignant boy and storms out of the room. Just a side note here, it seems like they were having some pretty big issues on this film and working together and getting it put together. So, uh, But anyway, so why was Hitchcock doing this? Why was he rushing into this film that might not necessarily be something he wants to do, that they might not be doing the right way? Well, he was so obsessed with stealing Bergman away from Hollywood that he really didn't think of, you know, anything like that, or most of all, how her salary would affect the film and put it at a disadvantage financially. And it said he never really paid attention to the other actors. You know, he had this obsession with Bergman, and when she had her extramarital affair, Hitchcock was kind of crushed, it was said. He was so distraught and disappointed, and she was just this, you know, figure in his eyes where he was just crazy about her and working with her and everything, and it kind of blinded him on this one. Bergman had seen Rope ahead of time and didn't really like it. She had reservations about the long takes and even got into a half-hour-long argument with him over a scene. At the end of this argument, or near the end of it, she resigned, Very well, Hitch. We'll do it your way. To which Hitchcock replied, It's not my way, it's the right way. She even cried for her what was said to be the first and last time in her career over something Hitchcock had said later, or, you know, while working on this film. So, very intense. It seemed like their relationship might have gotten a little shaky after this as well. And while they were getting ready to film, the Elstree crew went on strike. And though they would return, the atmosphere of filming was never in a good place because of the strike. There's just so much stuff going against this film, kind of like there was going against the Paradigm case. So it's just unimaginable what they had to go through on this and what, you know, the output would be of it. Uh, It's said that the noises on set were too loud to record proper sound. So they would have to, you know, have the actors record their dialogue on separate days. You know, one day they would shoot the film and then the other day they would record the dialogue which is a very sloppy way to make a movie and probably led to what we would see with this one. According to Joseph Cotton, who was in Under Capricorn alongside Bergman, a popular saying on set was, now what? Not not looking good. Uh, He remembers specifically referring to the film as under corny crap right in front of Hitchcock, so he made it known what he thought of this film. Under Capricorn finally got a release in September of 1949. The reviews were bad, and the box office returns were dismal. Not good. Not good, as you remember, Rope did not light the world on fire as well. People were starting to say that Hitchcock was lost without Selznick guiding him, which I probably could not imagine how that made Hitchcock feel, the way he left Selznick in that way, and the way those two kind of butted heads. Alma had also, you know, helped, been very entwined in writing this film, and the reviews hit her hard. She was said to have wept uncontrollably after hearing reviews, and she she was not in a good place because of it. I don't think any of the Hitchcocks were. The movie essentially bankrupted transatlantic pictures. Hitch ran away from the situation and signed a four-year movie deal with Jack Warner for around a million dollars. So he was cutting bait. Uh, Hitchcock was taking the money and running, you know, he was fine with, you know, taking, setting aside this 
this project that he had worked so closely with Sidney Bernstein on and running. Now, I have uh, there's a weird thing, and this is what changed up the cadence of this episode and made it a little longer. When you look up transatlantic pictures, and I know they were supposed to do Stage Fright, which will be the next movie we'll move to, is a little spoiler here, but that ended up getting picked up by Warner, and you could see that being, you know, an early production before they were bankrupted. But it lists as their three films, Rope, Under Capricorn, and Strangers on a Train. And that's everywhere, you know, every, the only thing I could find about transatlantic pictures and their filmography were on wiki sites, and every wiki site said, that they did Strangers on a Train, without any allusion to it actually being done by this bankrupted company. I don't understand. They're listed as the distributor on all this stuff, um, and everything that I saw, I couldn't find anything linking Strangers on a Train to Transatlantic per, uh, Productions, except for the fact that it was listed in the filmography. There's nothing else except on these wiki pages. So I don't know what's going on there, but that's why I thought, oh, I need to extend this so I can get the ending of Transatlantic Productions, not knowing that it really wasn't for all intents and purposes. I don't think. I think that's a mistake out there. I think just no one has the information to correct it because I've never even heard it mentioned in the same you know breath. So, But we'll move on there. I digress a little bit. After being very experimental on his last couple films, Hitchcock decided to play it safe on his next one. And you can't hardly blame him. You know, he would nix the long shots and the color in favor of a more traditional black and white movie. The movie was based on the story Man Running by Selwyn Jepson. Alma and Whitfield Cook were tasked with the adaptation. And, you know, this movie would go on to be Stage Fright from 1950. In the spring of 1949, the Hitchcocks and Cook went to London to work further on the film. Hitch wrote to Warner while he was over getting ready to film and said, The crew at Elstree were crude and not at all the type of professionals he needed. He wrote that as soon as he was done filming, he would pack up the dub tracks and get the hell out of there. So, uh, yeah, not, <laughs> not necessarily his type of situation. There's not a lot on the production of this movie. You know, all we know is pretty much what I've went over and that reviewers uh, didn't really feel strongly one way or another about this one. In my opinion, this one is kind of, uh, yeah, he played it safe and it feels like one of those older Hitchcock films. It feels like one of those early ones he was doing when he was still in London that are hit or miss. And I get that. Apparently this is supposed to be like a farce or a satire film. I didn't pick up on that hardly at all. You know, there are comedic there are comedic elements for sure. I I never got that when I was going through it, so maybe I missed something. I don't know. I never got that vibe. The vibe I did get was not great. Um, let's set this up with a synopsis before I go any further. So this is a 1950 film, ran for 110 minutes, and you feel all of that 110 minutes. No, I, I'm being facetious here. It's not that bad of a movie. Um, but the synopsis reads, a struggling actress tries to help a friend prove his innocence when he's accused of murdering the husband of a high society entertainer. All jokes aside, I do like this movie, but it just seems like such a step down from Rope and Notorious. Maybe not under, under Capricorn, but 
the plot is just fairly basic, and there's not much depth to the characters as we go through it. And I would say, you know, the biggest way it shakes things up is in its ending, and I don't really feel that was an earned ending, and it kind of kind of comes out of nowhere. So I did pick up on one note on this one. Seems like everybody is using somebody else in this movie. You know, Charlotte, who is essentially essentially you've got this. It's not really a love triangle, but you've got Charlotte, who is the actress whose husband was murdered, and she's this big star. And then you have Johnny who is in love with Charlotte, and they've been having, you know, an affair. And he's the one who was accused of murdering the husband. And then on the other side, you have Eve, who is this young actress who's always been in love with Johnny and would do anything for Johnny. Johnny doesn't have those feelings for her, and you can see how you've kind of got this unrequited love situation that maybe Charlotte doesn't really love Johnny, maybe, and Johnny probably doesn't really love Eve, even though they are returned love. So, um, but, I mean, Eve's not innocent either because she's using her father's kindness and, you know, putting him in an awkward position. She's doing that to her mother as well, I suppose. And she's also kind of using the detective in the film to an extent. And I should mention that the detective has feelings for Eve. So it's just all over the place. It's just hard to keep track of all of this, these romance angles in the movie. I think the main draw is, you know, with Eve, because Johnny's basically hiding out, Charlotte's going about her life like nothing happened, but the main draw is Eve kind of getting up to her antics and going from one thing to another and getting herself in these situations that are awkward, and I can see the comedic elements there for sure. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that going on here and there, but uh, other than that, I mean, it's just kind of, just kind of middling for Hitchcock. There's some good things about it. There's some bad things about it here and there. I'm kind of with the critics. I don't have much to say on it one way or another. You know, if we're talking about this movie, um, I'd say it's teetering, you know. It's like a lower priority recommendation for Hitchcock. For Hitchcock fans, I mean, you're going to want to see this one still to complete it. It's probably a lesser seen Hitchcock movie. This is one of the ones where I was talking about has such a high rating one. IMDb, and I'm not sure where it's coming from, but, you know, Hitchcock fans are, of course, going to want to see this, and everyone else, you know, make this a very low-priority recommendation. There's not much to the thrills aspect of it, and there's just not a lot there. After Stage Fright, Hitch returned to California, but didn't really have much to do. In fact, he spent a whole seven months not having any work at all to do. And this was very unbearable for him. And you note that usually when we're talking about him, while he's in production on one film, he's usually doing something else for another movie. So, quiet times for Hitchcock, and they wouldn't exactly get much easier ahead. So, we're going to get into the next movie he actually would do, which would be Strangers on a Train. And this is the one where, you know, I've kind of added this section in because I thought that this was transatlantic and... Maybe it was, but sure didn't talk about it anywhere or have any sources for that. So but this is where we're switching up a little bit. We're going to cover Strangers on a Train. I figured, you know, there's plenty to cover in the latter part of Hitchcock's career whenever I get to that. And might as well cover this one and we can pivot from there when I get to the rest of the stuff. In the spring of 1950, Hitchcock would finally get his next movie rolling 
when he read a book called Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. When they went to negotiations, Hitchcock made sure to tell them to not mention his name and he didn't want to be there for the negotiation. I'm assuming to keep this low profile, you know, this was Patricia Highsmith's first novel, I believe, and they were trying to get it for a cheaper price. Well, they acquired the rights for only a little over 7000 so they got what they were after. Problem was, at first he couldn't find anyone to work on it because of the flatness of his first draft. You know, him and his agents went all over the place trying to find writers to work on this movie and couldn't find anyone at all. Eventually, Finley McDermott, who was a story editor at Warner Brothers, suggested that Raymond Chandler, who was intrigued by both working with Hitchcock and his $2,500 a week salary. Now, Chandler had won an Oscar for his previous screenplay for Double Indemnity, so he was a hot commodity in the industry. But the partnership really didn't work out. You know, Chandler's contract, first of all, stated that he wouldn't have to travel, so Hitchcock had to go to him whenever they needed to talk about the script. Once, when Hitchcock went to see him, he was struggling to get out of his car, and Chandler was overheard saying, Look at that fat bastard trying to get out of his car. Yeah, not, not exactly. He didn't exactly revere Hitchcock. He also hated script meetings, and we know that Hitchcock loved script meetings all the time. And he didn't really take the script serious. You know, he was calling it a silly little story. He seemed all around like this, you know, bitter man who was working with Hitchcock. Not a lot of positives coming out of him. Well, by September of 1950, Chandler was fed up and left the project altogether. He ended up saying a Hitchcock picture must be all Hitchcock. He left at the last minute, just weeks before they were set to start filming, and the studio threatened to shut the project down. But Hitchcock came in just at the nick of time and brought in Ben Heck's co-writer, who threw Chandler's script in a trash can and began from page one. And that would be Cincy Ormond. And Cincy Ormond was Hecht's assistant, and Hecht wasn't available for this, so he suggested her. Well, she worked quickly and was able to deliver the ending a week before it was shot. Hitchcock was said to be excited about this film, even claiming that this was the true start of his American career. During filming, he would be on set and would work so much on this film. I mean, he was there from 7 a.m., to 9 p.m. every day. You could tell he's kind of reinvigorated with this one and he's putting his heart and soul into it. Filming began in October and wrapped in December. Much of this quick pace was credited to the excellent crew that he had working with him. In particular, his director of photography, Robert Burks, was said to give Hitchcock a ton of great ideas. He liked him so much so that they would work together on 12 films throughout the rest of Hitchcock's career, I believe up to Marnie, excluding Psycho, and there was one more, I think, afterwards, maybe, I don't even want to say because I don't know, but, you know, they worked on 12 films together, which is no small feat. Strangers on a Train was finished two days before Christmas of 1950. It would end up being released in June of 1951 and was a very successful film. In fact, he was heralded again as the master of suspense. 
So all it took, you know, after the string of failures, all it took was one movie to get him back in the good graces. And we saw that in his London days as well. But that's about all I have on Strangers on a Train. Let me go ahead and set up the movie and we can talk about it. And I wish I would have found more in that, especially its connection to Transatlantic. But whatever, I guess we're I guess we're never going to know. So Strangers on a Train was released, like I said, in 1951. And the synopsis reads, A psychotic socialite confronts a pro-tennis star with a theory on how the two complete strangers can get away with murder. A theory that he plans to implement. Now for me that sounds much in, you know, much like Rope. It seems in the similar vein as Rope. Again, we're getting this, how do we get away with this, or how do we commit the perfect murder, or this and that. I think that is a main driving force here with Strangers on a Train. The premise is excellent, and I think it's one of the you know best premises to ever be put in a Hitchcock film. I think it's great. Now, the execution, well, we can get into that. With uh, most of Hitchcock's films up until this point, I've had to warm up to them first. But this is an example of one where I was interested at the very beginning. What we have in the beginning is, you know, we've got this tennis star on a train who has aspirations of getting into politics and starts telling him these facts about himself. And he is really like, you know, how do you know this? How do you know all this stuff? Like, who are you? And he gets into this proposition, you know, I'll kill your, I'll kill your wife so you can, you know, because his wife is refusing to divorce and he wants to be with the woman that he's having an affair with. So it's like, I'll kill your wife if you kill my father who's threatening my way of life. So she's threatening your way of life. He's threatening my way of life. Let's get, you know, let's get it done with. And we don't have to worry because neither of us would have motivation. The problem is, is one man is serious here and the other man had no intention of ever doing this in the first place. And that's where the crux of this movie comes in. I won't say a lot more about the plot because I think it's pretty good at unraveling where it goes. Uh, It's nothing, you know, nothing great and there's no real big twist, but it's a decent enough plot. With the acts of violence in this movie, we really start to see the on-screen violence in Hitchcock films ramp up. That would be important because, you know, what we would see later in his career. But we're really seeing... We get a pretty hairy scene here early on for 1951. I think it's a a very... I like the scene a lot. It's done in a very cool way. As much as, you know, a death scene could be done in a cool way. But I like the way that Hitchcock films it. And it's really saying, you know, I'm not messing around anymore. Uh, once again, we've got more of these death games talks that happen, like in Shadow of a Doubt, or, you know, that happened in Rope. And it's, you know, it's clearly... A through line, but it's basically these people at a party and they're saying like, oh, how would you murder someone? Isn't there someone you would ever, you know, for just an instant want to murder, like your husband or something else, like in a split second? And the game really escalates, but, and, you know, really leads to the conclusion of this film. But, but anyway, the main point of contention for me, because this is a really good movie, you've got, you know, the blackmail aspect of this going through it. You've got, um, you know, some really good characters that I like a lot, and everyone is kind of looking out for themselves to an extent, or there are characters looking out for themselves to an extent, 
but I don't think that lessens the power of these characters. My main complaints happen much later in the film, and it's with the two-part ending of this. And one focuses on a tennis match, which is very weird and kind of kills the momentum of the movie. You know, I don't mind watching tennis, but I don't really want it in the you know last 20 minutes of this thriller film that I'm supposed to be engaged in kind of kills that whole thing, and it does switch back and forth between the tennis match and other things, but it seems like, more than anything else, that was Hitchcock's gimmick for this, you know, with Spellbound talking about psychiatry and other things like that. It's just, this was his thing. He built this around a tennis, you know, game. But And then there's the other ending, once the tennis match is over, and that is just so bombastic and over-the-top And it's a little reminiscent of some of the scenes in his earlier thrillers that are just too much to be considered, you know, good thriller set pieces. I just think it's a little too much and a little over the top for my liking. I didn't hate it, but it it really kind of, movie really kind of ran out of steam at the end for me. And that's my main gripe with Strangers on a Train. I think it's really good up until then, and maybe I'll come around on it now that I'm expecting it. But I think those are some very weird choices for this movie. Other than that, you know, for Hitchcock fans, probably most Hitchcock fans have seen this one, but it's a must-watch in that sentence. And it's, I would say it's a high recommendation for everyone else. If you are curious about Strangers on a Train, definitely check it out. It's not, you know, it's a well-known Hitchcock movie, but again, it's not to the level of what he would put out in, you know, just a few years' time and those kind of mega-hits. So yeah, that's really all I have for the features of this one. I know I went a little quick, but I don't really like to talk and spend a lot of time on movies with this. I do like to talk about them and give my opinions, but really I want to talk about, you know, the underlying history and the production schedules and all that kind of stuff, and that's what I'm interested in. So let's, uh, you know, the only piece I have left on here to kind of set up our cliffhanger for whenever we finish Hitchcock is, you know, Hitchcock had, after he had finished this movie, he had proceeded to, you know, take some time off, and much of the spring and summer of 1951, him and his family were traveling Europe, and it was kind of, once again, he found himself without any immediate prospects. So, we will see much later on, we're going to take a few, there will be a few topics in between at least until I get back to Hitchcock. It's just a lot of work, but I have enjoyed going through and learning more about Hitchcock and watching a lot of these films I haven't seen before. And uh, yeah, it's been great. This was all prompted by, you know, me buying that universal set of Blu-rays. So it turns out I could hardly use any of them for this section. But anyway, I have enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let's go ahead and move on to something new after this. What do you say? But, since I haven't done it in a while, it is time, and it lines up with this episode, to have my, you know, listener roulette pick. Now, for this one, I had sent out a Facebook post a long time ago, and I got several responses to that. And the first one was from Ian Urza, who, if you don't know, um, has his own blog and is a very prominent lover of... Italian films and his knowledge for Italian films is very deep as long as you know as among his other films you know he watches a lot of movies and a lot of genres and 
So check out Ian's blog. I will link that in the show notes if you haven't already. But what I want to do with this list, and I might do this for you know the next one as well, is I wanted to take a you know my 2022 horror movies. I wanted to make a list of my 2022 horror movies that I need to watch that have released and are available to me, and pick one of those. So Ian gave me the number nine, and I ended up setting these things in alphabetical order, and like I always do, and picked the ninth one. The ninth one was Shepard. So you may not have heard of Shepard, and I wouldn't blame you. The thing that I saw about Shepard and made me put it on my watch list was, and this is getting less and less reliable, were the critic reviews. I think this had like a 70-something on Rotten Tomatoes from critic reviews. The problem is, is when you look at something like IMDb, it's got like a 4.9. It's getting less and less, you know, you can rely less and less on the reviews of the critics. now. For these smaller films, at least, I feel like there's less people seeing them, and the people that see them are really hyped up for them or giving them a good review. I don't know. I'm finding it harder and harder, and I really don't care what most mainstream critics think of movies now. I would much rather get that information from different podcasters and uh, YouTube videos and things like that of people who actually are down in the trenches and love these types of movies. So that's that's where we get at with this one. So we're not starting off with the best, on the best foot with that when I saw that IMDb rating, because all I saw initially was what the critics thought of it. So let me give this, you know, set this up a little bit. It is directed by Russell Owen, and I love the tagline because it goes back to the old saying, you know, red sky in morning, sailor take warning type of thing, and that is red sky in morning is the tagline. So you get a sense of what you're in for here. The synopsis reads, when a deadly secret rots the mind of a grieving widower. The decision to work alone on a deserted island morphs into a terrifying race to save his sanity and his life. I assure you that is way more interesting and exciting than the movie itself. I'll tell you, so far I haven't been burned on this segment yet, and that kind of changes now. But that's okay. I know when I'm putting this list together of you know 2022 movies I still need to see, we're not exactly... I see the cream of the crop usually early on, and then what gets left over are, for whatever reason, there's some movies that get left over, and I know a lot of those aren't going to be good. But at first, it, you know, it has sort of this generic indie horror vibe. We've definitely seen this type of movie before, but I, I did like the initial setup of him being in a place alone with his dog to watch these sheep, you know, because that's what happens. His wife, something happened to his wife. Yeah, he tries to go back to his mom's house, and apparently he's done something wrong to his mother because she turns him away. So he takes this listing that he saw on the paper to watch these sheep on this island that, you know, he needs to take a boat to to get there. And it's a very isolated situation. All he has is him and his dog. So I kind of like that. Also, the cabin that he lives in, it provides a pretty creepy and eerie setting, and I like that as well. But that's about where my likes end. The problem with this movie is it wants to be this indie. Now, this is probably what, when I was talking about, you know, when they think about elevated horror, this is probably the thing they're upset about because not a whole lot interesting or exciting or coherent happens in this movie. I mean, 
this is the thing, like, you know, this is a pale imitation of an A24 film, and I know we've all seen those movies. You know, it's got the pretension, and it's got all of this kind of stuff surrounding it, but it doesn't deliver the content, and that's really where this thing just completely falls apart. It just doesn't have any of the content to back it up. It just wants to be this esoteric thing where it's, uh, you know, look at me, look at me, we're doing this interesting thing, and we've got this cool, oh, I bet you didn't see this coming moment and all this stuff, and I'm just like, come on, man, I've seen this too many times, this is not good, uh, let's move on. Um, <laughs> I I don't want to spend, you know, much more time on this one, I really disliked this movie, just because nothing happens in it, and and to give you an idea, as of the time I'm recording this, I have seen 42 2022 horror movies, and right now it is dead last on that list. So that should tell you something. There's really no reason to watch this one. There's no reason to waste your money. I mean, it's. I think it was a pretty cheap rental as far as that goes, but uh, I don't think that many people would have heard of this one. It doesn't look like a whole lot of people have seen it so far. It came on my radar somehow, and I kind of wish it wouldn't have, but that's no fault of Ian's. So I'm not saying that, Ian. I appreciate you going in there and picking the movie for me this time. It just didn't work out. It's not always going to work out. You can't always get winners. So I think I want to do, like I said, one more of these 2022 with the, you know, August version of this roulette section. And then I'll probably move back into older list or something like that. I'm just trying to clear out some 2022 movies. And I know a lot are coming up over the next, you know, several weeks and months, so there'll be plenty on that list. All right, well, that's going to end it. Uh, That is the end of the Alfred Hitchcock coverage for now. I hope you've all enjoyed this. I hope, you know, you've gotten something out of this. I know Hitchcock isn't everybody's bag, but we are going to be pivoting and doing some kaiju stuff later on. So that's going to hopefully cleanse your palate. And I've got a new little tiny project I'm working on where I'm going to put out some smaller episodes. Feel free to skip them or listen to them whether you're interested or not. But I'm going to start doing some short, probably 10 to 15 minute episodes of when I play some genre video games and want to talk about those. I've been wanting to talk about those and I think the best way to go about it is just do some little mini bonus episodes as opposed to writing about them in a long-form format. So I hope you would enjoy those. I'm going to try to be quick in and out and hopefully give you something that you maybe hadn't heard of or that you would like to play if you're not big into games or even if you are into games and you don't know what to play next. So I've got a couple lined up to do on the last couple of horror games that I've played. So those will come out. You know, whenever there probably will already be one out by the time you hear this episode. So look forward to that and let me know your feedback on those as I go along. I might have some other non horror and non movie related stuff going down, but we'll we'll see how that plays out. I've just always wanted to do a couple of things and talk about a couple of different areas and aspects that I necessarily haven't been able to. So We'll see how that goes. Oh, and I do want to plug, by the time this comes out, I will have been on a new podcast that's living within the Phantom Galaxy realm. 
Um, and that podcast is called Phantom Video. And myself, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and Dave Becker will be going into more physical media releases and looking at movies from that perspective. I mean, on the first one, we talked about um, some criterion choices. We each picked six criterion uh, picks that we would recommend that you pick up for the sale that was going on in July. So I know that's a little late now, probably by the time this episode releases, but I did want to plug that. It will eventually be moving over to its own podcast feed, but right now it's living in Phantom Galaxy. So there is that. And then as always, I would appreciate it if you shared the podcast with your friends and give us reviews on the podcast service of your choice. And yeah, you can find the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. We do have that Facebook group at Screaming Through the Ages over there. You can call in and leave a voicemail at 740-297-6556 if you have anything to say and want it played on the show. You can also send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. And with that being said, until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.